Welcome back to Give Me Some Truth, Season 2, Episode 3. My name is Obadiah, and this is the podcast where I present and highlight new research that helps to unravel fact from fiction in the Beatles' history. At the end of July 1969, with Give Peace a Chance nearing the top of the UK charts, Beatles fans opened their August issue of the Beatles Book Monthly to read that there would be a new Plastic Ono Band record coming the last Friday of August. Apple Records promotion executive Tony Bramwell described it as a long and heavy instrumental single. It's called Rock Piece and was recorded immediately after a recent Billy Preston LP session. What exactly is rock piece? Well, for nearly 50 years afterward, fans couldn't figure it out. That is until the publication of A is for Apple, Volume 2, The Winter of Discontent, by Axel Corinth, Ed Dykeman, and Anthony Caraselli. In the second of their multi-part series on the history of the Beatles' multimedia corporation, co-author Caraselli finally solved the mystery. For this episode, I am joined by the lead writer and project originator, Axel Corinth, to discuss the evidence that solved the mystery of rock piece, and to discuss the book series in general, and the wonderful research they do. Hello, Axel. Thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Unfortunately, the books are printed as limited runs, and all the volumes are currently sold out, except for volume two. But their publishing house, AppCore, also releases books by other authors, vinyl, CDs, and DVDs, and all the information can be found at appcore.net. As Tony Bramwell said in July 1969, the recording that briefly became Rock Piece was recorded after a session for Billy Preston's That's the Way God Planned It LP. This then begs the question, were John and Yoko involved in recording Billy Preston's debut, George Harrison-produced Apple LP? No. And not only were they not at the session, they weren't even in the country. The session in question took place the night between the 28th and 29th of March, at Olympic Studios in Barnes. The musicians were assembled to record the title track of Billy Preston's record. We know the date of the session because of who was involved. Backing vocalist Madeline Bell remembered the session in a 2006 interview with Record Collector magazine. George did a wonderful album with Billy Preston, and Doris Troy, myself, and Billy did all the backing vocals. We did That's the Way God Planned It in the middle of the night and Billy Preston sang with us as he wanted to do backing vocals as well. That session went from midnight till six in the morning. Eric Clapton, Klaus Vorman, and Ginger Baker were on that too, and it was a great record. George had brought in Clapton and Baker, former bandmates in Cream and current members of Blind Faith. In Ginger Baker's modestly titled memoir, 
Hellraiser, the autobiography of the world's greatest drummer, he remembered the session as well. In March 1969, I did some tracks in the studio with Billy Preston and George Harrison. We were doing That's the Way God Planned It when our roadie, Mick Turner, popped his head around the door to tell me that my son had just been born in the Avenue Road Clinic in St. John's Wood. My friend Guy Warren, the master drummer from Ghana, also known as Kofi Ganaba, was in town, and so I called my son Kofi, meaning born on Friday. Kofi Baker, now a professional drummer in his own right, was indeed born on Friday the 28th of March, 1969. Andy Davis, who worked on the 2010 CD reissue campaign for Apple's back catalog, was kind enough to share information about the Billy Preston sessions with the AppCore team that he had documented from the original session tape boxes. These now belong to the George Harrison estate. Although many of the original boxes have been replaced with Friar Park Studios boxes, some session information was transferred. The box for the 29th of March session tape lists Take 1 and Take 27 of That's the Way God Planned It, as well as a 12-minute track titled Jam Piece. This session was one of probably two sessions that Ginger Baker contributed to for Preston's album before he was replaced by Peter Clark. Clark said that Baker got fired because he couldn't cut the pocket, but it's also possible that with a newborn baby he wasn't as available as he thought he might be. Baker was a drummer's drummer, highly admired by the Rolling Stones' Charlie Watts, but he was also notoriously difficult to work with. While this star-studded session took place in London, newlyweds John and Yoko were likely asleep at the Amsterdam Hilton, having completed the first four days of their first bed-in for peace. Therefore, they could not have been involved in the recording in any way. But upon their return to London in April, George must have played them this groovy jam he had just recorded, and John loved it. If George wasn't going to do anything with it, could he and Yoko release it as the debut single of the Plastic Ono Band? George agreed. Well, was it the Plastic Ono Band or the Plastic Yono Band? That's the question. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, as you say, they, they came home from the bed in and heard this amazing jam and suddenly they had the idea to put it out for some reason as their own record, which is quite silly, actually. Absolutely. But but originally the Pasagono band was just one of Yoko's sort of conceptual pieces, which was a a, a sculpture uh, yeah. of a band yeah. made made of plastic parts, basically, essentially. Four plastic parts, um, like the Beatles. Four, uh, three bigger uh, cubes and a smaller one, like Ringo. <laughs> so that was the Pasagono band, yeah. During their Amsterdam bed-in, Two handmade signs hung above John and Yoko's bed. One read hairpiece, the other bedpiece. As we'll discuss in more detail in a future episode, John and Yoko played with Yoko's tradition of calling her artwork something P-I-E-C-E, such as cut piece or bag piece, to fit their current crusade for P-E-A-C-E. In this spirit, the Lennons wanted to release the jam piece, P-I-E-C-E, 
under the name Rock Peace, P-E-A-C-E. The only hurdle was to get authorization to release music by performers and composers already under contract with other publishers and labels. The 12-Minute Jam not only had five performers, but also technically five composers. George, Billy Preston, and Klaus Vorman were already free to release through Apple, but the contributions of Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker would need permission. To this end, David Platz of Essex Music, who had been brought in by Alan Klein to manage Apple Publishing, wrote a letter on the 16th of May to Robert Stigwood, who managed Clapton and Baker through the Robert Stigwood organization. One thing I love about the A's for Apple books is that whenever possible, they reproduce entire documents such as several letters and the resulting draft contract for this story. For some strange reason, the letter, typed on Apple stationery, was titled Plastic Yono Band. I have absolutely no idea why he's talking about the Plastic Yono Band. And um, an- another thing I just uh, realized when we put out, uh, I don't know which volume it was, volume was it volume three or four? I can't remember which one. Um, when you talked about Give, Give Me the Chance, um, the name Plastic Ono Band didn't exist then. So I have absolutely no idea why um, David Platz thought about the name Plastic Yono Band because the the expression plastic owner band um, just came about after the Montreal pattern. Maybe that was an early version of the name? Yeah, possibly. possibly. Dear Robert, Platz wrote, Further to our conversation, this will confirm our discussions that on the single recording of Rock Piece, you will allow us to release the performance by your artists, Ginger Baker and Eric Clapton. Apple Records undertakes to pay the artists a royalty of 1% of 90% of the retail selling price of all recordings sold by Apple throughout the territories of the world. Pending some more formal agreement, it is also understood that the same above-mentioned royalty shall be applicable to each of the three other performers on the above-mentioned record. With regard to publishing, as your writers are under exclusive contract to Dratleaf Music, we have agreed that Apple Music Limited shall co-publish this work throughout the territories of the world, and I will contact Rudy Slezak to finalize the agreement. I shall be grateful to have your confirmation as soon as possible. Yours sincerely, David Platz. Presumably, Stigwood confirmed this because the information was then passed to the two companies' lawyers to draft contracts. Apple was represented by G. Lawrence Harbottle of Harbottle & Lewis, and the Robert Stigwood organization was represented by Oscar A. Buzelink of Wright and Webb. On the 6th of June, Harbottle sent a revised draft contract and cover letter to Oscar Buzelink, following discussions with Stigwood. My clients, he wrote, would like this matter to be completed as soon as possible, and accordingly I should be grateful if you could let me have any comments at the earliest possible date. Inexplicably, the recording referred to in the contract was now titled Plastic Yono Band, with no mention of a rock piece at all. Yeah, it's happened like this, and uh, my, my personal impression is, but we, we didn't write it like this in our book, uh, that no one cared too much about the track, because everyone knew that it was a, a lousy deal anyway, and um, the group, if it was a group, didn't have a proper name, um, the track didn't have a proper name. It, it had a different title on the on the tape box anyway, so it was a mess from the start. Buzelink replied three days later. 
Dear Lawrence, To my delight, one of the first letters confronting me upon my return was yours of the 6th of June, 1969. To my chagrin, I must point out that your agreement does not accord with reality as my clients understand it, because the simple terms of this matter are 1. My clients are to receive 1% royalty. 2. They are to be completely anonymous, and a specific undertaking must be given by all concerned to this effect. 3. They are to have two-fifths of the publishing and to be co-publishers. Perhaps you would let me have an appropriate limited license and undertaking accordingly. Yours sincerely, Oscar A. Buzelink. Yeah, the track was meant to be co-published by uh, Apple, Apple Publishing, and um, Dreadleaf Music, which was um, Stigwood's publishing company. In fact, there was a song co-published by Apple and Dreadleaf, which, which was Outside Women Blues from the Disreal Cheers album, Cream. Um, that was a track co-published by both companies. So they would have um, renewed this um, cooperation, but it was not meant to be. There were other problems with the contract, such as misspelled names and that it was dated to the year 1961. When John recorded Instant Karma the following January and bemoaned how long it takes to usually release a record, he was possibly thinking about all the back and forth for rock piece. As the lawyers tried to sort out an agreeable contract, John and Yoko returned to London on the 6th of June from their second bed-in in Montreal with a new single they had just written and recorded called Give Peace a Chance. Plans for rock piece to be their debut Plastic Ono Band single were shelved to make way for their new peace anthem. And it was more commercial. Oh, it's... Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, no question. Reflecting on the success of Give Peace a Chance as it reached the top five of the UK charts at the end of July, Apple's press officer, Derek Taylor, wrote in Disc and Music Echo, The ad said, You are the Plastic Ono Band. And that is the truth. You are, and I am, and the Beatles are, any of them, or none, or all. Anyone. The first record was Give Peace a Chance, and it is a good thing that this is so, because it is nice to launch a band with a number one record. But it wasn't necessarily the first release. It just happened that way. It just happened. It could have been a song written against the track, recorded for Sgt. Pepper, and not used in that most wonderful of all albums. It could have been a track recorded by George Harrison and his All-Stars, a beautiful thing, recorded expressly by George and his friends because they love John and will do his bidding. It was Give Peace a Chance because it happened, and all its other releases will happen as they happen. Ultimately, the Sgt. Pepper era track, You Know My Name, Look Up the Number, which actually began after that album and wasn't completed until April of 1969, found release as the B-side to Let It Be in March 1970. Which in itself is quite a similar story because it wasn't a Plastic Owner track, it was a Beatles track, uh, which John and Yoko wanted to put out on, in their own name. I, I suppose, again, um, in a sense of um, you're the Plastic Owner band, so we can put out anything... It doesn't matter who plays on it, because it's a conceptual band anyway. Rock Piece, on the other hand, never materialized for the Plastic Ono Band. Give Peace a Chance was followed by Cold Turkey and the live Peace in Toronto LP. Rock Piece was presumed lost to time. The missing piece, it wasn't uh, the peace song as some people thought it would be. It was something completely different.
In December 2014, two Apple acetates previously owned by Ginger Baker were auctioned on eBay. One was a 7-inch pre-overdub stereo mix of Do What You Want, the other 1969 Billy Preston track he played on, and the second was a 10-inch instrumental disc titled Jamming, Billy Preston and Co., clocking in at 11 minutes and 22 seconds. Could this be the lost rock piece jam? A recognizable preview available in the eBay auction revealed that the jam that almost was rock piece had already been publicly released and available since November 1970, only under a different name. Rock piece, it turns out, is actually I Remember Jeep from George's triple All Things Must Pass LP. During the recording sessions for his debut album, George collected numerous jam tracks and put them together on the third so-called Apple Jam LP. I Remember Jeep went on the album more or less as is, but a synthesizer part was added during a mixing session on the 6th of October, 1970. It is unclear whether George played this live. I don't know if it's true. I, I, I really don't know. I, I know it says uh, Phil McDonald um, says George played the synthesizer, the Moog, on, on live during the remixing, but I'm convinced it's uh, no time or space from ele- electronic sounds. Just just lift it from the LP. It's it's exactly the same noise. But maybe it, it was just uh, some synthesizer pattern George you, uh, liked to play. That might be another option, but it sounds too similar. In a 2000 interview with Billboard magazine, George remembered, Jeep was actually Eric's dog, a funny kind of orangey-brown dog with pink eyes. A Weimar runner. Rock piece, it turned out, had been hiding in plain sight this whole time. It just took Antonio Caricelli to connect all the dots to figure out what it was. Great work. To conclude my conversation with Axel, I asked him to take me back to the beginning of his journey, where this whole project began. So, AS Rabble is not your first research project. 
no. the series. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into researching the Beatles and what other projects you've you've worked on? Um, I started to to study the Beatles when I was about I don't know fifteen or sixteen or something, and I started writing my first book uh, with. Thorsten Knubloch, who did the Mach Schau book for Epcor. Um, for we did a book together in 2006 or something, which was Komm, gib mir deine Hand, which basically was um, the, the preceding project for Thorsten's Mach Schau and um, the other book he's written about the Bravo Beatles Blitz tournee, the 1966 German tour. Yeah, and it was quite an important book I suppose in Germany it was only uh, published in, in German and yeah th that started it all and I did a, another one about the 70s about the Wings concerts in Germany in the 70s and Ringo was in Germany a couple of times in the 70s actually all four Beatles were in Germany even John Lennon which is quite interesting then came the idea to write a the most comprehensive book about Apple ever written. I, I suppose it is the most comprehensive series of books about any record label ever written, <laughs> I must say. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, so I got in touch with uh, Ed Diekmann. I knew him before, but I knew he was um, quite a respectable guy when it comes uh, to Apple. And so we decided to join forces, and later on, Antonio joined our team, Antonio Caroselli from Italy. But Antonio said, um, yeah, I have a lot of knowledge about Apple. I did uh, many articles about Apple in like Beatle Fan magazine, etc. Um, may I share my knowledge? And we said, yeah, sure. Because um, the thing is, the the project is so huge, I or Ed and I couldn't write it on our own. It's just too much. The story is too big to tell. And so it was good to have Antonio join our team as well. Actually, Antonio is the guy who um, uncovered all the facts about Rock Peace, who unearthed uh, the documents shown in Volume 2. So... Was, Thank you, Antonio. It, it was his uh, discovery, actually, not mine or Ed's. Yeah, and uh, I th but what did we do next? Um, there was Kevin Harrington's book, The, the Beatles Brody, which, which was a very nice project to work on. Uh, that, that was our first outside project we made. What was your role in, in making that happen? The book already existed. It was a, a Kindle ebook. And uh, we asked Kevin to, to make a proper book out of it and expand it a little. And yeah, it, w it was quite nice to have a, not, not to have, a, have to write a book um, on our own, but um, to edit a book, to put it in a readable form and to insert pictures, um, to do the layout. Um, it was a nice experience and we've, done a couple of books from, from other others um, since. When you began the project, did you know that it was going to be however many volumes it's going to be? Or, or 
or were you kind of just starting and seeing how far you got before you, you, you filled up a book? Um, I started to, to do the book on my own, volume one. And I just thought, yeah, it could be a, a big book, like 800 pages. Tell the whole story from 67 to until today. And after Ed joined the team, we soon realized that it's not possible at all. And we thought, yeah, maybe four volumes, four volumes that looks fine to tell the whole story. Yeah, well, now we put out volume four and it ends in April 97. <laughs> so we have absolutely no idea um, how many volumes it will be in the end. I guess maybe five more, but then, well, I'm, I'm close to 40, but the other guys are a couple of years older than, than me. I really don't know how long we're going to work on this project, but I sure hope we can finish it someday. When you're working on a new volume, how do you divide up the research between you? Is it uh, everybody gets to choose what they're interested in or? Yeah. 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 Simple as that. Um, I'm not too interested, although I, I like music a lot, I'm not too interested in, in writing about Mary Hopkin. Uh, for some reason, but uh, Antonio likes uh, to write about her. The same goes for Badfinger. I love Badfinger, but I'm not too interested to write about that story. So I'm. What I do these days is mainly to write about <clears throat> the Beatles and solo Beatles, and uh, I think I'm the one who's knows most about all those weird, unknown, unknown Apple publishing artists. Um, we were never signed to Apple Records, but uh, had a publishing deal with Apple. Um, Ed doesn't do a lot of writing, but he's um, the research guy. Let me say, um, Ed, we need um, New Mus Musical Express, April 71. He'll dig out a copy and uh, get us the, the quotes we, we, we need. And he puts together all those discogra discographies, which I have absolutely no idea of, because um, I don't collect worldwide records. I just collect uh, UK pressings. Right. So I mean, that's a huge part of the book is, yeah. is all the the worldwide pressings. And uh, I mean, it's something that I really love about the books is that it's sort of like we're just giving you everything we found. Yeah, exactly. It's so exciting uh, the, for, for, for a researcher like me, too, that to, to just be able to see the documents right there in front of me and and all the sources and know, oh, this is where this came from. And, right, yeah. Um, so this is what, what Ed is, uh, mainly does. Was that always the idea, the the way it was going to be presented? Or yeah. is that something that kind of, yeah, it was. But we have to, um, I, I think we've mentioned it in the the foreword for the last book. We have to reduce this uh, a little bit, otherwise the, we we won't ever manage to to get the series done. If we have thousands of pages, imagine um, seventy three when it comes to the red album, blue album. It would be a whole book just with red and blue covers, which would be silly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, people who want to see all those variants uh, can check out Ed's webpage, um, apparecords.nl, which shows all there is. We, have, we don't have to put it in the books anymore. 
it's going to save quite a bit of paper too, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah that's the point. Um, it, it, it wouldn't make a difference um, for the writing of the book books, but yeah. um, we can't have more than 700 or 750 pages or something, 800 pages in one book. It's just not possible to, to have it printed and, and um, the binding wouldn't hold. Yeah. yeah. Well, also, my bookshelf is running out of space uh, because Mine too. the books are, 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 beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are beautiful, really beautiful books. And, Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Congratulations on, on all the success and selling them out every time. Thanks. I, I, I bought uh, volumes two and three before I had volume one, mm-hmm. and I was desperately looking <laughs> everywhere to find a, a copy and i finally tracked one down in germany uh at a good catch from the beatles beatles museum yeah. so i uh, i got lucky so AppCore itself was was that created to publish the books yeah or or, or were you always thinking you were going to be publishing other works as well no 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 not at all um we uh, we knew that no publisher would be um, silly enough to, to publish our books. Just They're just too far out, too, um, too big, too, too expensive. And we, we haven't even sent a manuscript to, to a single publisher because we, we knew everyone would say no, so it um, was a no-brainer to have, a, have them published by ourselves. Any other projects you're working on at the moment that, I mean, I'm sure it's all hush-hush <laughs> until you send out the newsletters, but... Mm, well, I think it's it's no secret that we're working on Volume 5. Right. How's it going? Uh, it's going quite quite well. Um, I'm stuck uh, in the Let It Be chapter. Let It Be, uh, the LP. The release of Let It Be. The yeah. release of the LP on the film. And... Well, of course, there was a lot of new stuff from the Get Back um, Disney Plus series. And I think it would it will all be covered in the book as well. To have a, a final word about the Get Back sessions. And um, uh, speaking of Disney Plus, there's uh, this Mary McCartney documentary, These Walls Could Sing, which uses some of the footage from the DVD we have released a couple of years ago. It, it was quite an honor, an honor to, to, to read our name, the credits. So, so oh, yeah, we're finally there. <laughs> and finally, I'm, I'm also working on a book um, on my own without the other guys, which will be... Um, I think a nice surprise for everyone. <laughs> okay. Um, it, it goes back to the very early days, but it won't be a, a rehash of uh, Marshall or something, but something completely different. Interesting. All right. mm. I look, I'm looking forward to that too. Because uh, I understand that you, you contributed to Tune In, Mark Lewison's. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. First part. Yeah. Right? A little bit. <laughs> Again, quite that an honor to... That makes it sound like a, a, lot, a lot of it. No, yeah, not that, a lot of it. No. Um, I think um, the main thing I've contributed was about um, Stuart Sutcliffe's time or a short stint with the German group. The Bats. The Bats, exactly. Well, <laughs> it was known, at least in Germany, it was known that Stuart played with the Bats, but um, 
it was me and uh, Torsten back then who actually got in touch with them and uh, I met with one of the guys for a couple of beers in a pub which, which was fascinating we, we finally figured out the the dates uh, when Stuart played with them it is in Mac Show and it's in, in Tune In and it will probably mentioned in my new book as well <laughs> well uh, Axel thank you so much for for the time and uh, yeah, is there anything great. else you want to mention or plug or uh, I know I think we have plugged anything we still have to sell <laughs> <laughs> which isn't much yeah. at this point it, it isn't much no um, but uh, anyone can check out our website uh, appcore.net and uh, we also have a web shop and um, there's still a couple of interesting books available CDs vinyl I think the DVD is still on stock Plenty of interesting stuff for everyone. Thank you to Axel Corinth for joining me for this episode, and thanks for listening. If you'd like to submit a question or topic for a future episode, or you have additional information about the history presented in one of these episodes, you can write to me by email to gimmesometruthpod at gmail.com. I am also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at gimmesometruthpod. I post episode artwork and other relevant visuals on these platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a future episode.